Merry Christmas. We're so glad that you could join us on this most holy night. So let me begin by asking you a question. Do you love to sing Christmas carols? Between 1931 and 1933, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught theology at the University of Berlin. And one day he surprised his students by asking them, do you sing carols? And he received a somewhat ambivalent response, which tells you a little bit something about the state of the theology world in 1930s Germany. So in, re in reply, Bonhoeffer said, if you want to be pastors, you must sing carols. And he said that beginning on the first day of Advent, they would meet as a class every day at noon to sing carols together. Now, why did Bonhoeffer insist that these budding theologians, these pastors in training should sing carols? Well, it's not because these songs are beautiful, though they are. It's not because they're traditional or familiar or even because they're nostalgic and bring back fond memories of the past. No, he insisted that we sing carols because the whole gospel is contained within these songs. Now, over the last several weeks during this season of Advent and Christmas, we've been exploring the gospel message contained in some of our favorite carols. We began with Joy to the World, and we considered What Child is This? and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But tonight we turn to O Holy Night. And what all of these carols have in common is that not one of them, not one, is sentimental. You're not going to find these words inside a Hallmark card, but that is where the power lies. These, these songs bring us face to face with the power of the gospel. And the reason, therefore, that Bonhoeffer encourages us to sing these songs, to make them their own, is because he's inviting us to experience the power of the gospel the power of the Christian message for ourselves. So tonight, as we turn to O Holy Night, I'd like us to see that this carol has something to tell us about the weary sorrow of the human condition, the glorious wonder of the divine solution, and the thrilling hope of true transformation. So this carol has something to tell us about sorrow about wonder, and about hope. So we'll begin first by considering what it tells us about the human predicament, but first, the story behind the music. Now last week I mentioned that Hark the Herald Angels Sing was written in 1739 by Charles Wesley. He was walking to church one Christmas morning and he was inspired by the sound of all of London's church bells ringing. And so he wrote a poem which he intended to be read every year on Christmas Day. And that poem turned into Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Well, O Holy Night was also originally written as a Christmas poem, written in French in 1843, to mark the occasion when a small little church in the south of France renovated their organ. Well, you might know that in recent years we recently installed a brand new carolin of 50 bronze bells in our completely restored bell tower, and our organ is currently being renovated right now. It might be installed this time next year. So I don't know, what do you think, Central Church? Is anybody going to write a poem between now and then that maybe one of us will be singing, all of us will be singing one day? Well, this Christmas poem was set to music in 1843, and then it was translated into English 
1855, during the run-up to the Civil War. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But this carol sums up the human predicament on both a personal as well as a societal level with a exquisite as well as somewhat haunting line. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Now, doesn't that just say it all? It captures everything from a broken heart over a failed relationship to the atrocities of torture and war in the Middle East. It's not sentimental. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. There's only one little problem with this exquisite line, and that is perhaps the word sin. To us, to our ears, that word sounds a little old-fashioned. It's fallen out of favor. It sounds overly pious to us. If we were to employ the word sin in everyday language, we would use it in a joking manner, perhaps to refer to some kind of guilty pleasure, like a sinful dessert. But if we were going to be serious, well, we would use a different word or a different phrase altogether. We would talk about addiction or disorder or abuse, but not sin. But I would like to make a good case that we should retrieve the word sin because there's no other word that quite captures the tangled web of both pain and sorrow that we weave day in and day out through our own deliberate fault. There's no other word that quite captures it. Just think for a moment. We might hurt someone inadvertently, unintentionally, without realizing it. But what about all those times when we hurt someone knowingly, perhaps even purposefully or deceitfully? I want you to stop for a moment and recall the relationships in your own life, perhaps relationships with a family member, a, a parent, a, a spouse, or a child, or perhaps relationships with a friend, a neighbor, a, a colleague, or a coworker. We all know that there have been times when we haven't been as patient or as kind or as generous as we could have been, but sometimes we might have done something downright nasty or mean, and we don't even know why. And all these little sins, they, they build up, they compound over time. And they not only wreak havoc within our hearts, they wreak havoc within our world. One author put it like this. He wrote, the things that we have done seemed, or mostly seemed, small at the time. The word of encouragement withheld. The touch of kindness not given. The visit not made the trust betrayed, the cutting remark, so clever and so cruel, the illicit sexual desire so generously entertained, the angry answer, the surge of resentment at being slighted, the lie that we thought would do no harm. Surely not too much should be made of it, we thought to ourselves. But now, but now, it has come to this. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. 
So let me just speak personally for a moment, and maybe you could resonate with my own experience. When I look back over my life, I grieve over the fact that I've made so many mistakes. There's so many things that I wish I hadn't done or said, or I wish I had done something differently. And who of us couldn't say that we haven't done something for which we could never make amends, we could never take it back, we could never change it, we could never undo it, because a done deed cannot be undone. And once a word is spoken, it cannot be unsaid. And I think what weighs on me is not only the relational friction that accumulates over the years, but the fact that I make many of the same mistakes over and over and over again, and I don't know why. The Apostle Paul put it perfectly and famously in Romans chapter 7 when he said, I don't even understand my own actions. I don't do the thing that I want, and I do the very thing that I hate. There's no better word to describe this than sin. And that's why we need to retrieve this old-fashioned religious word. So perhaps you can relate. This carol speaks of a weary world. It's so easy to grow weary, is it not? And I especially resonate with that word pining. Have you ever felt that Deep longing, that deep longing to be set free from unhealthy, perhaps even destructive patterns of thought or behavior or relationship that steal your joy, that sap your strength, and that prevent you from becoming the fullest, truest, freest version of yourself. You see, the fact of the matter is that we are, we're pining, we're longing to be different, we're longing for our world to be different. And then it happened. And then it happened. After all of our waiting and our wondering, after all of our sorrow and tears, after all of our heartache and pain, he came. God has not left us to our own devices, but rather he has come. And after all these long years, he appears. He enters into our darkness after all those long years of crying out, where is God? He breaks the silence with a cry of his own, a baby's cry. He reaches into our cries with a cry of his own. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And you see, that brings me to my second point, which is the glorious wonder of the divine solution to our human predicament. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God has come to us. But what exactly has he done and will he do about our weary world? Well, it actually comes through a little more clearly in the original French poem rather than in the English translation. See, in French, O Holy Night is known as Midnight Christian because the opening line goes like this. Midnight Christian. Midnight is the solemn hour when the God-man descended to us to erase sin and to end the wrath of his father. 
You're not going to read that inside a Hallmark card. That is what Christmas is all about. The God-man has descended to us to erase sin and to end the wrath of his father. Now, we would hear that and we would say, erase sin, sure, that sounds good. End wrath? What can that possibly mean? We struggle over a word like wrath as much as we struggle, if not more, over a word like sin. We think that it would be unbefitting of a God who is marked by love and mercy and grace to be characterized by anger or wrath. So what is this all about? Well, on the one hand, we should not think of God flying off the handle in a fit of rage because he can't control his anger. No. The God of the Bible does not have anger management issues. And on the other hand, think about it. If the creator God, the sovereign God of the universe, did not get angry at the evil and the injustice that is tearing apart our world, what kind of a God would that be? Would that be a God worthy of our worship? No, we would have an even bigger problem if God was not angry at the world's evil and injustice. So years ago, the author Rebecca Pippert writes this. She says, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who's perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But think again. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. A theologian once wrote, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. See, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. So how could a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. No. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. So do you realize that? God is not outraged by evil and injustice instead of being loving, but rather God is outraged by evil and injustice precisely because God is love. He separates the sin from the sinner. He loves us, but he hates that which destroys us and our world. So God's wrath, his anger, it's not infantile. It's not uncontrollable. No, his wrath is his settled opposition to all sin, evil, and injustice. It is his settled opposition to everything that destroys the beloved. But if that's all true, then how does Jesus bring an end to wrath? Well, it's not like the pagan myths. We're all probably somewhat familiar with Greek mythology. Do you remember the story of Agamemnon? Prince Paris of Troy abducts Helen, Helen of Sparta, which sparks the Trojan War, and that's why we know Helen as the face that launched a thousand ships. 
And so Agamemnon took command of the Greek forces, and he set sail to retrieve Helen from the Trojans. But he's being resisted by a strong wind. He assumes that he's being resisted by the gods. So what does he do? He sends home for his own daughter, and then he sacrifices his daughter in order to supposedly appease the wrath of the hostile gods. Well, is that what we're talking about? Is that what the Christian message is all about? Far from it. Now, the God of the Bible is not a capricious, bloodthirsty tyrant who needs to take out his anger on somebody else. Now, here's the message of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, God himself has come to us, which means that God sacrifices himself. He substitutes himself for us on the cross in order to destroy sin, evil, and injustice without ever destroying you and me. He does away with sin so that he never has to do away with us. He destroys sin so that he might love the beloved. Second Corinthians chapter five, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. And that's why we say in the creed, he came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. That is why he's come. That is the message of Christmas. But this message will not do us any good if it remains outside of us. This is the greatest gift that God could ever offer, the greatest gift you could ever receive but you have to receive it in order for it to become operative in your life. And the way in which you do that is through repentance and faith. You turn away from sin and you put your trust in Jesus by faith so that you might receive all that he has won for you through his birth, his life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. This is what Christmas is all about. But if all that is true, what difference does it make? Why I would suggest that Christianity changes everything. So let me close with a thrilling hope, the thrilling hope of true transformation, not only for ourselves, but also for our world. See, first of all, there's hope for ourselves. Now, I want you to stop and ask yourself, if you could picture God's face when God is looking at you, what kind of expression does God wear? Is he smiling upon you? Or is he frowning, grimacing? Is he giving you a stern look? Is he looking at you with a scowl? Do you think that God loves you? Do you feel appreciated? Do you feel valued? See, we might think that Christianity assumes a very low view of human beings because of our sin and error. I mean, look at the mess we've made of ourselves and our world. Maybe we think that we're damaged goods. We've spoiled God's world, and therefore we think that we're worthless. We're not worthy of love. Perhaps we think we are unlovable. But it cannot be. It can't be, because God would not choose to enter the world and to live and die for someone, for something that was worthless. It makes no sense. He came, which means that you are of infinite worth, infinite value to him. You are worth it to him. You are worth it every little bit of sacrifice. Every little sacrifice was worth it. 
So do you hear these words from the carol? Till he appears and the soul felt its worth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, pining till he appears and that's when the soul truly felt its worth. Now you know your worth. Now you know your value. You don't know who you are. You don't know your true value until you see yourself through Jesus' eyes. And not only does Jesus promise to forgive you, but he promises to renew you. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. You see, the past can no longer be held against you. And he offers you the hope of transformation in this world as well as the next. If you have Jesus in your life, then tomorrow is a new day. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So this Christmas, I want you to feel your worth the message of Christmas is that you are significant, you are valuable, you matter, you count, you are loved because you are loved by the God-man who descended to us in the person of Jesus. But secondly, there's not only thrilling hope for ourselves, there's also thrilling hope for our world. Now I mentioned that this poem was first translated into English by an American in 1855. And the timing, of course, is significant. The translator knew that the God of the Bible is not a doting Santa Claus who just pats us on the head and sends us on our way, leaving us unchanged. No, the God of the Bible enters into our lives in order to transform us and to transform the world around us. The whole reason why he's entered our sin and error-filled world is to do something about it. And he resists not only the sin, the evil, and injustice in our own hearts, but also the sin, evil, and injustice in our wider world. He not only enables us to feel our worth, but also the worth of every single human being. And part of our mission is, in fact, to help others discover their true worth in and through Jesus. So on the cusp of the Civil War, the translator writes these lines in the second stanza. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. You may be interested to know that this church, Central Presbyterian Church, was founded in 1821 by a man named William Patton, who was an ardent abolitionist. And his son was named William Weston Patton, and he dedicated his entire life to the abolition of slavery. In fact, he was the chairman of a committee that met with President Abraham Lincoln in Chicago in September of 1862 in order to encourage Lincoln to issue what they called an Emancipation Proclamation, which Lincoln then did a few months later on January 1st of 1863. See, what I want you to realize is that, yes, Christians have made a lot of mistakes down through the centuries, and it's easy to pinpoint them, but you realize that some of the people who have done the greatest good for our world are the people who have been animated by this gospel, by this Christmas message. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. That's what animated the founder of this church. That's what has animated thousands, millions of Christians who have gone before us. 
because they knew that God does not set us free from sin in order to live for ourselves, but rather God sets us free from sin and self to live a life of love and service and yes, even sacrifice for God and for others in light of what he has already done for us. He not only reconciles us to himself, but he entrusts to us the ministry of reconciliation. So let me close by asking the question that Bonhoeffer asked his theology students, do you love singing Christmas carols? You should. Not because they're beautiful, traditional, or nostalgic or sentimental, but because the whole gospel, the whole gospel is contained within these songs. So this Christmas, I want you to consider who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Christ is the Lord. Let's praise his name forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this most holy night, and we pray that you would help us to consider the weary sorrow of the human predicament and to embrace the glorious wonder of the divine solution to our problem so that we might experience the thrilling hope of true transformation for ourselves and for our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.